0: jfpenn.com forward slash free. Hello travellers, I'm Joe Francis Penn and in today's interview I'm talking to author Rebecca Cantrell about Berlin in Germany. So Becky writes historical mysteries and thrillers, and I have particularly enjoyed her co-written Sanguines series with James Rollins, which has an element of religious history like my own Arcane series. But we are talking more about her historical mysteries set in Berlin today. So Becky is American, but I met her in Berlin a few years back when I was visiting, uh, speaking at a conference in Berlin, but also, as I always do, taking time out for some culture and book research. I find stories everywhere. So Becky was living there at the time with her husband and her son, and we met on Museum Island, uh, which is a fantastic bit in the middle of Berlin where they have all these different museums, really brilliant. And I had visited the Pergamon Museum to see the Ish. Gate, which once stood in the ancient city of Babylon, constructed in 575 BCE by King Nebuchadnezzar, which is it really, it still gives me chills to think about it. And they have reconstructed it there in the museum. And it's like stepping back in time. And they have a model there of where it, where it would have been in that ancient city. And if you do go to Berlin, please go to the Pergamon Museum. It's, it's brilliant. They have some really, they have some other fantastic reconstructed ancient um, buildings there too. And of course, I had to put it in a book. Uh, so in my thriller, End of Days, I do have the Ishtar Gate. I gotta love the apocalypse. (laughs) So much fodder of her story. Anyway, in this interview, Becky and I talk about why she loves Berlin so much, how she was able to research the Berlin of the 30s and 40s through original source material, and also the culture shock of going to Europe as a young American. And her recommendations for visiting the city now, because it's not all Nazi history. Modern Berlin is seriously funky, and a lot of incredible street art, even on the remains of, the berlin wall the old wall The um, the culture's brilliant they have good food amazing architecture sculpture and it's a big tech scene now so it's a very young city very vibrant so i hope you enjoy the interview Rebecca Cantrell is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling and award-winning thriller and mystery author. Her books include the Supernatural Sanguine series, co-written with James Rollins, the Joe Tesla techno thrillers, and the Malibu Mysteries, co-written with Sean Black. But today we're talking about Berlin, the setting for her Hannah Vogel historical crime thrillers. Welcome, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Oh, Thanks so much for coming on the show. So first up, tell us about why you decided to write about Berlin, because you're American. And what's your history with the city? Well, I kind of had a
1: random history with Berlin. I was an exchange student from a little town called Talkeetna, Alaska. And I went to Germany and I asked the board, when I filled out my application, they said, where do you want to stay? And I said, I'd like to stay in a small town, because that will be most similar to where I'm coming from. And I I feel like it will be a little bit more manageable. So they sent me to Berlin, which (laughs) (laughs) that's how that works. And at the time, that was a city of about two and a half million people surrounded by a wall in the middle of communist East Germany. And it was fantastic. I was just blown away with how different things were. And it was an amazing, artistic, wonderful place to be. And history was right there. So history was very, very real. When you went to East Berlin, you could see piles of rubble from when they had knocked it down to build the wall. And when you went to look at the museums of East Berlin, they still had bullet holes on them from when they had been strafed by Russian artillery during the fall of Berlin in 1945. So that was just amazing. And then I went back again for a year in college. I went to the of Universität. And then I wanted my son to get a taste of Europe before he grew up. So we moved there when he was 12 and we lived there for four years. So we're just back in the United States for almost three years now.
0: Wow, that, I had no idea you moved from Alaska. <laughs> Very different weather-wise. Oh yeah, but that's—I mean—in so many ways. So, what what was the what is the culture shock that you think Americans get when they hit Europe? I mean, Berlin is very European.
1: Yeah, well, I think part of it is just that everything is different. So, in Berlin, for example, I had public transportation, which of course I didn't have in Alaska, and that meant that as a teenager, I could go anywhere. I had a little bus pass and the the subway and the S-Bahn, which is like an above ground subway. And the buses in Berlin go everywhere. And so, for example, when my son went there at age 12, he could go to the movies by himself with his, with his friends. And when you go on the subway, you'll see little kids going to school, like six or seven year old kids will be on the subway going to school and they'll have their big backpacks on their back and they'll just get off at their stop and then go on to their class. And that's so... So for my son, it was a huge amount of freedom. And when he came back here and he was 16 and he didn't have a license yet, it was this kind of reverse culture shock, where he'd been used to having all this freedom, and then now he didn't have it anymore. And for me, also, of course, medical care, medical care there is is uh, reasonable.
0: <laughs> yes, okay, not a political show. But it's interesting, you talked about freedom there. And of course, Berlin with the wall. And, um, you know, you're writing about the history with with in Nazi Germany, freedom is was definitely not not happening. So what do you what it, what sort of remains of that Nazi presence in Berlin?
1: Well, there's more than you would think because, and then less than you might think, because a lot of the city was destroyed during the bombing at the end of the war. But for example, the Olympic Stadium is still there. So in 1936, Berlin hosted the what's now called the Nazi Olympics, which is where Jesse Owens won seven gold medals. Um, In kind of defiance of their racial ideology. Excuse me. And that stadium is still there. It's still a stadium. You can go see events in it. They have a swimming pool. Like one summer I took my son there and he swam in the same pool that the Olympians use. Um, And then some things aren't there. So if you go to the Hitler bunker, it's been filled in, paved over. It's a parking lot by my doctor's. So I was leaving my doctors and I saw a little plaque and there was a tour bus. And I'm like, what could that possibly be? It's just a parking lot in a mod- modern building. And I went over and read that this is, you know, this is where Hitler died and this is, was where the bunker was. So there's this kind of old and the new and you can see it different places. And, and for example, the SS headquarters, they have the foundation of that building um, and they have a giant exhibit where you can go through and they talk about what happened there. So they have remnants of it. But not all of it. And I think that's kind of what Berlin struggles with, is they have this problematic past and they work very hard to confront it, which I think is is a uniquely German thing. So like if you look at stuff um, in the United States or in Britain, it's very pro-American or pro-British. So, for example, when I so there's things we don't deal with. When I was in France at Nantes, I went to a museum and they had a slavery museum. And that was when I first realized I'd never seen a museum that documented slavery in the United States. Um, and so, but you're, but Berlin works harder to confront those kinds of things. And so you're constantly coming face to face with what happened before. So like the cobblestones, I lived in uh, Mitte, which was in the former East Berlin, and they have cobblestones everywhere made out of stone and they have some cobblestones that are made out of brass. And on those cobblestones is the name of a person who lived there who was Jewish, who died in the Holocaust. So it'll have their name when they were born, when they died, and what happened to them. So we like deported Auschwitz and murdered or, you know, disappeared, like to Tresen and assume they were killed, but you don't know kind of stuff.
0: Mm. No, you're so right. And um, uh, it's, isn't it, it's illegal in Germany to deny the Holocaust? Absolutely. Where it's certainly not. Illegal in our countries um, to, to deny that kind of thing, but it, and there's also a very beautiful um, memorial, isn't there near that big gate? That is the Brandenburg Gate.
1: Yes, there's the um, Holocaust Memorial, which is all of these giant squares that are made out of concrete and they're gray, and then you can walk between them, and they represent the graves of all the people who died in the Holocaust. And it's it's it sounds really stark. And it is very stark, but it's very, very powerful as you just walk amongst them because you go down. And the way the water kind of runs down the side, it, it looks like the stones are crying when it rains, which happens a lot in Berlin. Um, and when you wander around between them, because they're taller than your head, you're kind of in this maze of, of gravestones.
0: Mm, yeah, I've been there. It's a very powerful place. And people are very respectful, even though it's a public, you know, it's not a museum as such. It's just a public um uh, sculpture, I guess. Um, but people were very respectful, uh, when I was there, which was, which was lovely. So the other thing I, you mentioned the sort of the East, West Germany and Berlin is really famous for the wall. Um, you know, <laughs> some people will sort of remember the pictures of, of when it came down. So what remains of the wall now? And if people go there, what can they see there?
1: Well, the biggest still standing segment of the wall is the East side gallery. It's over a kilometer long and it's painted with murals by various artists so that they they you know they had them come in and paint them so there's a Keith Haring mural there and then there's murals by bar- various artists all around the world on the subject of walls and peace and reconciliation so that's the biggest segment but there's also a smaller segment at Potsdamer Platz where you can go and kind of end, touch it and kind of see it and then there's a teeny tiny fragment at Dusman's, which is a bookstore um, and Friedrich Schlosser. And if you go into the back, there's the English bookstore. And in front of it, they have a big case. And it's a piece of the Berlin Wall. And it's signed by Ronald Reagan. And he wrote, "Gorbachev, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And then he signed it. So that's kind of the American wall moment, I would say.
0: Mm, yeah, I, I think the murals um, uh, it used to be called graffiti when people put paintings on walls, but it really is uh, art, isn't it, around Berlin? And it's not just the wall. There's a lot of murals.
1: Oh, Berlin has so much graffiti everywhere. There's tons of murals. There's this technique people use where they'll take something and paint it on paper and then they'll just basically wallpaper paste it to a wall so they can get something that's very detailed without getting caught because it is still against the law. Um, And there's just amazing artwork everywhere. There's the Anne Frank House, which is a memorial to Anne Frank. And if you go back in there, there's a theater in there and there's this kind of weird robotic goblin house where you go in and they have like lights and these giant robotic goblins do dances and things. But if you go around the Anne Frank house, it's covered with a with incredible graffiti and people are constantly painting over it. And I have just, I don't know, hundreds of pictures on Facebook that were taken at that location because it's always new and it's always different artists and it's just so interesting what they come up with. Mm.
0: And then for your for your Hanna Vogel historical crime thrillers, what what are the Uh, Are there any places that you put into the books that you particularly feel a sort of kinship to?
1: Yeah, well, it's amazing that the world of Berlin now is more like Hannah Fogel's world than it was when I went there in the 80s. So I lived there in the 80s and 90s. And I wrote um, the the novel came out 2009. And I hadn't been back for a long time until when I went back I was astonished to find that many of the buildings that had been destroyed during Hannah's time had been restored. So, for example, there's Hotel Ablon, which takes which has uh, there's a lot of pieces of um, of nylon knives take place in the in that hotel. And it was destroyed by the Russians. They had a giant wine cellar. And at the end of the war, the Russian soldiers broke into the wine cellar. Much wine was consumed and the building ended up being set on fire. And then after the war, the wall ran right next to it. So they just, you know, destroyed, moved the rubble out of the way, built the wall, put down the landmines, and there was nothing there. And then when the wall came down in 1989, they rebuilt it and they rebuilt the hotel in the style that it had been before. So this hotel that hadn't existed except for in my imagination is suddenly there again, which is just astonishing. And then El Dorado was this gay cub where her brother sang, and that existed in the 20s, and then they turned it into a Nazi headquarter, and then in the 90s it became a gay bar again and I went there and it was very cool and it, and it had all these paintings on the wall from Gale Close who was a, a painter in the 1920s and it looked like my book like it looked more like my book than it had when it was the bar but then when I went back there in 2013 it was no longer a bar it was an organic grocery store so it, time <laughs> is on <laughs>
0: That's very cool. Um, So what about modern Berlin? Because uh, I visited as part of a sort of entrepreneurial conference, and it's got a reputation in Europe now for being a sort of tech hub, and very young and, um, you know, full of sculptures. So what do you think modern Berlin is, is like?
1: Well, it definitely has, I think they had the unique opportunity when the wall came down, is suddenly they had a bunch of downtown property that they could build on. And I don't think that's the case for most cities in the world because, you know, they grew up over time and you very rarely get city centers to design in the modern style. So you see a lot of really interesting architecture and sculptures and things that you wouldn't necessarily, they had just so much space to play with. So potsdam has that big giant tent over it that looks like Mount Fuji or a circus tent, depending on who you ask. And then there's a an American theater in there, or a theater that plays original version movies, many of which are in English. So that's where we spent a lot of time with my son. And they've got, a, you know, a big Christmas market in there and they have Christmas trees in. And it, it's kind of this multi-purpose space. And there's a Starbucks there, a cafe. So I can sit. you can sit there and write and look down and watch all the people and watch it kind of change throughout the year. So it's a, a cool meeting place, but there's stuff like that everywhere. There's Hamburger Bahnhof, which has a ton of, of different kinds of art. There are art galleries just everywhere um so it's a wonderful place to go they have you know just uh, giant sculptures they have a sculpture of the the man i forget what it's called where there's the one man he's like punching through the stomach of another man you can see from the baschauplica which is a great place to go because you can see that sculpture and then you can also go and see the east side gallery and, and wander and look at all the paintings or the murals of the wall um but yeah it's extraordinary go yeah. in case you didn't guess i'm enthusiastic about berlin
0: I know, I know how much you love it and and I actually uh, the first time we met was in Berlin and I met you uh, near the Museum Island um and I was visiting the Pergamon Museum which is really incredible which has the Ishtar Gate from ancient Babylon and I was like wow this is amazing. So um what what are the sort of the best museums that have inspired you or that that you've uh, looked at in your research or that you think are fascinating?
1: Well, there's a ton. So Museum Island has a bunch of wonderful museums. And in addition to that, they have temporary exhibitions that go through. So this is not about the Hannah books, but I wrote a book called I Frankenstein. And it featured the art of Kaspar David Friedrich, who was a German romantic author. And he kind of started what we would now call kind of the Gothic sensibility, where you have the one human being dressed in you know, kind of Victorian era clothing, and looking out over a giant vista, or the kind of in a, in a ruined Gothic church with the light coming in just so. And so, when I worked in the sanguinous series, um, that was definitely th- those paintings were definitely front of mind. And they did do an exhibit there at the um, uh, the National Gallery, which was very cool. And they also have a cloister. It's called the Cloister Ruina, and it's an old cloister that was destroyed and they still have part of the building. So you wander around this kind of destroyed Gothic cathedral, which is very cool. Um, and the Jewish museum is amazing. It has the whole history of Judaism in Berlin. So it's not just the Holocaust, although obviously there's a huge Holocaust section, but it starts, you know, back when Jews first emigrated to Berlin and has a big section on the 17 and 1800s too, um, There are so much museums and they're, oh my God, it's so much fun. And if you have a kid, I would say, take them to the Currywurst Museum. So that's this museum that traced the history of the Currywurst. And the Currywurst is a kind of sausage that you cut up and then you cover it with ketchup and then you put curry on top. And it's it's very much a Berlin institution in street food. And it was invented after the war by this woman called Heta Hetahati, I think. And she and so there's this museum dedicated to it and you go with the kids and they have giant French fries and video games. And so it's kind of a, a cool place to take a kid if they're you know if they've been a holocausted out.
0: <laughs> oh I love, uh, yeah and and I think that's really important because uh you know there's a lot of darkness in the history um but also Berlin is uh when you know when I went and obviously you live there there's a lot of celebration there's a lot of fun it is very you know young as well and you mentioned that like currywurst it's hilarious it's like one type of street food and christmas markets are a thing that sort of germany in general um is well known for so what what are some of the other things that people might like to uh, eat or? drink uh, in Berlin?
1: Uh, well, you definitely want to have a dünnä kebab. So that's a Turkish street food and you get a flat bread, They cut it in half and then they cut the meat off of the spit. So they have, you know, the big giant turning spit and they cut the meat off of that and they put that in there with a bunch of red cabbage and sauce and onions and uh, tomatoes. And then you just carry it around and eat it that's definitely my favorite street food but as far as food is concerned oh my god berlin is like the food capital it, is, it has amazing food of all different kinds so when we lived we lived in this one little part of downtown and within a kilometer of her house there were 25 different ethnic food restaurants so there was um ethiopian there was there was a great syrian place across from my son's school There was an amazing Vietnamese place not far from our house. So there's just so much food. If you're in Berlin, eat, eat, eat. And then as far as Christmas market food is concerned, um, they have, this is much better than it sounds, but you can go and they have this giant cauldron and it's full of kale and potatoes and sausages. And I know kale, but it doesn't taste like American kale and it's cooked down and it's so, so good. (laughs)
0: Oh, that's excellent. And did do you, do you just drink a lot of, of beer in Berlin? Because it's kind of famous for for beer, I think. I did
1: not so much. Um, but because I'm allergic to wheat, so beer is kind of out. But at the Christmas markets, they have really good mulled wine and uh, eggnog, hot eggnog, which is just it's but you got to watch the eggnog because it is high octane stuff. So if you have <laughs> like, a whole eggnog in a short period of time. You should not drive. So we did a friend of mine and I did like the Christmas market tour where we went to three different Christmas markets and we had an eggnog at each one. And and this was, you know, we walked a couple kilometers and spent a lot of time looking around. But even by the end, the three eggnogs after like five hours was too much for me. <laughs>
0: No, you met, it's funny because you mentioned they're driving. Now I'm, obviously I'm, I'm British and I don't have a car, haven't, you know, and, and many people in Berlin, you, I mean, you, you don't have a car, do you? You walk or get the, the transport. As you said at the beginning, it's like a public transport. But if people just want to walk around the, the most historical areas, is, is that all walkable?
1: It is very, very walkable. So when I lived in Berlin, we didn't have a car for four years. I mean, we're Americans. So we have cars here because you have to have one. But in Berlin, we didn't have one. I mean, it is very walkable. So we could walk from our house to Museum Island and you can walk from the Museum Island to Brandenburg Gate, um, like it's a little over a kilometer. And then from Brandenburg Gate, you can walk than and uh, half a kilometer to the Holocaust Museum. And then another half kilometer will take you to Potsdamer Platz. So it's all very, very walkable, especially the downtown area. And if you don't want to walk it, get yourself like the tourist pass and take public transportation. And there's a great app called VBB um, that tells you, you put in your destination and where you are, and it tells you what public transit you need to take to get there. So it'll be like, take the 17 bus and then get off here and take the subway two stops and walk. Mm. So It's it's definitely possible to get around everywhere. And what's really astonishing is how well developed the public transit system is like there is nowhere that's more than a few, I'd say, 50 yards from a bus stop, subway stop or tram stop. It is amazing coverage. I've never seen the likes of it. I think it's because the West Berliners had to build theirs up and then the East Berliners built theirs up on a different set of tracks. And so when you mesh them, you get an amazing amount of public transit.
0: Mm, fantastic. So apart from your own um, your own books, what are a couple of books you would recommend that people read to get a sense of Berlin?
1: Okay, but I don't know if I'm going to be able to limit it to just like a few, but <laughs> <laughs> I will do my best. So if you want to know, like, so the, my first book, A Trace of Smoke, is set in 1931 in kind of the gay cabaret era. And if you want the best book on bars and cabaret and the kind of the weird sexual history of Berlin in the 20s. I would recommend Voluptuous Panic by Mel Gordon. It has a lot of pictures and a lot of fascinating details about what's going on. Um, and if you're interested in the Cold War, people after the Cold War, there's a really good book called Stasiland by Anna Thunder. And it she is an Australian journalist who lived in Berlin in the 90s after the wall had come down and kind of back when Berlin was still cheap and had a lot of, you know, people who could still afford to live there, who'd lived there for years and years and years. And she interviewed a lot of people who'd been involved in the Stasi. And the Stasi was this short for the state Zisha Heights. And that was their kind of like their FBI, but it was very intrusive. And so they say one in four people in the country was an informant for mm-hmm. the Stasi. So um, it's a fascinating book about that. Uh, in the Garden of Beasts by Eric Larson is a really interesting a nonfiction book. And these are all nonfiction. And this was set in 1936 when the new American ambassador came to Berlin. And it's a true story. He's documented, you know, his sources exhaustively. And it's a story of the American ambassador and his daughter. And um, who was who was an adult and just a total um, whirlwind, who <laughs> like dated SS officers and then dated Jewish people and kind of had this was very much plugged into both sides of what was going on in Germany at the time. Um, and that's definitely fascinating. And then if you wanted a better sense of the twenties and the era before the Nazis, I would recommend the Harry Kessler diary. So it's called um, the Berlin and lights and the author is uh, Count Harry Kessler. And it's rumored that his mother had an affair with the emperor and that he is, and he is royalty, but that he is actually much more royalty than he seems. And he was this diplomat and intellectual, and he kept this extensive diary of everything that was going on in his life. So he was sent to negotiate the ceasefire with Poland in World War I, but he also knew everyone. So if you look at his diaries, every single important person in Europe in the 19 teens, 20s, visited his house. Everybody from Albert Einstein to Josephine Baker, she came to his house and danced wearing nothing but, you know, four bananas and everybody in between. So it's a fascinating kind of, and he's a very entertaining writer. And just he went out and did things. So when there was the Spartacus revolution, they were shooting people in the streets. He marched right out there to see what was going on. And everybody's like, "Eh, don't do it, don't do it. And, you know, his staff, because he had, you know, a ballet and such, like, don't go outside, sir. And he's like, I'll be right back. And he (laughs) goes out and creeps down the pavement and then documents everything that he saw. But in a very matter of fact, kind of what I would call British, almost British sensibility of, you know, the stiff upper lip. And so then there was this bullet and took a piece out of the thing next to me. How extraordinary.
0: (laughs) I love how detailed you are about your research. I know you you worked really hard to um, make the Hannah Vogel series so exact. Um, so, do you, um, do you uh, sort of do you list all your research in in the back of the book so for for those people who love all the detail?
1: I do. So, I have authors' notes in the back of my book, and I usually list, um, if not all my sources, my most interesting sources are my most relevant sources. So for, um, so Hannah's a reporter, for example, and there was a woman called Bella Frome, who I know I was supposed to limit myself on books, but I can't, who wrote a book called Blood and Banquets. <clears throat> and so she was this um, society reporter in Berlin in the 20s and 30s. And she met she met Hitler, and she met all these other people. And then she had, she was Jewish, so she had to flee to the United States. Um, but I got a lot of information what it, from that book about what it was like to be a reporter back then as a woman.
0: Mm. No, fascinating. Now, I know you've traveled a lot for all your book research and you're often in in Europe um, and around the place. Um, So I wondered, like, why do you travel? Why do you love uh, traveling and what does travel give you?
1: Well, I like to see different ways of doing things and different ways of thinking and to kind of I feel like it gives me a chance to walk where history walked to see these places where extraordinary events occurred and then just to see the ordinary everyday life that's there now. And also food. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. That's fantastic. So where can people find you and your books online?
1: Uh, I have a website, uh, RebeccaCantrell.com. And my books are everywhere that books are found. Amazon.com, you know, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, etc.
0: All the usual places. Well, thanks so much for your time, Becky. That was great. You bet. Thanks for having me. I'll talk about Berlin all day. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpencom forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.